0: amen well thanks Roxy and crew hey guys question for you just as I was back there watching you guys worship um why why do we raise why do some of us raise our hands during worship does anyone know what do you think you feel closer to God when you raise your hands Yeah, I was just thinking through, Lord, why why am I raising my hands when these lyrics are coming up? And if you're a football fan, what happens when your team scores? Just right there. you, You get excited. It's an expression of excitement. And when we see lyrics up here like Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love, That We just can't not help but, yes, this is so good. This is so true. So when you see your friends raising their hands, that's what's happening. It's you're seeing lyrics there that you're just so excited. Your body is responding as you're singing this. And it was so sweet just being back here. Uh, I, I don't know where it was coming from, but just hearing you guys shout this praise to Jesus, that Jesus, you are the cornerstone, which means that Jesus is the foundation. And if he wasn't there, everything else would crumble. That's what you're declaring when you say that. Hey, shout out to the counselors who did the belly flop contest. Can you raise your hand if you did the, the belly flop contest? Man. It might be 10 years from now. It might be 20 or 30 years. But I hope you remember this moment. And later on in life, you're going to be like, they did what <laughs> for me? That, that pond is fantastic freezing cold, and then to just have that slap. I literally saw Jesse icing his chest back there uh, for the gospel, right, Jesse? Come on. Okay, hey, we had a sweet night last night. Uh, Who can remind me, what was the main point from last night? Right here. Don't defile yourself for others. others. Yeah, maybe worded a little differently. How was it worded up there on screen? Main point number one. Yeah, that was the key question. Great. The key question was, am I only seeking God's approval? That came from Galatians 1.10. And then I see a hand up here. Uh, uh, Daniel resolved to follow God, not man. There it is. Awesome. Daniel resolved, which means he firmly decided to follow God and not man. And in chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel made this decision to stand up for what he believes in without knowing what God's going to do with it. And then we finished chapter one last night. Okay, if you, buy, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and hold them up for me. Remind me, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. This is from God himself, and we're, we're to approach this just with grateful hearts. So let's start turning our Bibles. We now have graduated from chapter one. Now we're going into, we're going to cover two chapters tonight. Isn't that sweet? Daniel chapters 2 and 3. That's what we're going to do. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you an overview of what happens in Daniel 2. And then we're going to camp out on some verses in chapter 3. Does that sound good? Awesome. Okay, so chapter 2. Chapter 1, it it ends with uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're top of their class. They're the valedictorians. But not just that, they're, what, 10 times greater than the professionals of Babylon. Remember that? And then uh, now we enter into chapter 2, and we're going to see specifically what happens with King Nebuchadnezzar. And and Hume and production team did such a great job portraying what happens in these chapters. But King Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream, and how does scripture word it, that really troubles his spirit. So what King Nebuchadnezzar does, the most powerful man on the earth at that time, he calls all the wise men that he has in Babylon. And he says, I have this dream that I I literally cannot sleep, and it's really troubling me. And he knows that if someone's going to interpret a dream, that is something supernatural. So he he says, you need to do something supernatural before you give me an interpretation so that I know that what you're saying is accurate. And he says, you have to first tell me what I dreamed, And then you have to give me the interpretation of it. Just like we saw the Nez here say that to the trashers. And the Babylonians, they actually double down and they say twice, King, come on, just tell us the dream and then we'll tell it to you. And then this short-tempered king gets so angry that he unwisely (laughs) orders all of the wise men in the empire to be killed, to be put to death. And there's some debate here of, of whether the the Israelite youth that we read about, Daniel and his three buddies, if they're still in their training period or if they have just exited out of the training period. But what we know is that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, because the wise men, they are reporting to the wise men, the wise men have been ordered to be killed. That means that they also are going to be killed because no one can interpret this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. So Arioch, everyone say Arioch. Arioch was the Babylonian captain of the guards and he's the one who's responsible for going and killing all the wise men so he comes up to Daniel and if you remember Darlene right here literally stopping the spear from coming and like wait what's going on and then Ariok fills Daniel in and then we see Daniel in a crazy amount of faith say schedule me an appointment with the king and I'll tell him its interpretation and we're just like Daniel surely you know what the dream is But then, and here's where I want you to see, if you got your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 2. So verse 16, that's where he takes this leap of faith. He says, schedule me an appointment with the king. But then look what happens in 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery. So what do we see here? Daniel literally schedules an appointment with the king without yet knowing if God is going to give him the interpretation. He's so desperate that he can only go to God. God, God, I can't do anything here to save my life. It has to come from you. So these four teenagers pray to God, and they seek his mercy. And it was so sweet seeing up here on the boat, uh, Darlene and Sherman, right, radioing, come on, King Magnus, we need you. We don't deserve it, but we need you. And then I love to see their expression when there's this response from the king. It's so good. Because if you can imagine Daniel just seeking, please, God, we're, we're literally gonna die unless you intervene right now. And God answers the prayer. So Daniel, then what does he do? He doesn't say, ah, I made the right choice. Look at that. He immediately just gives all the praise to God. And then uh, now let's look in verses 27 to 28. So now Daniel is standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, the mightiest man on the planet, this teenager from Jerusalem. Daniel answered the king and, and he reminds Nebuchadnezzar, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the latter days. And I can just imagine King Nebuchadnezzar just leaning in, and then here's what happens next in the chapter. Daniel verbatim, which means word for word, tells King Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. Can you just imagine King Nebuchadnezzar's jaw just dropping? Like, I haven't told anyone what this dream was. And now here's this teenager who says that Yahweh is God of gods telling me the dream. And here's the dream, Jackson. If you put that picture up there, Daniel says that you had the dream, and there was a statue, and his head was gold, and his his arms and his chest were silver, and then his core and his torso were bronze, his legs were iron, and his feet were iron and clay. But then, if you go to that next picture, there's a stone that was not cut by human hands, and it comes and, and crushes every piece of the statue. So Daniel's like, that's your dream. And and Nebuchadnezzar is like, yeah. And then Daniel says, here's the interpretation that comes from God Almighty. And Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you and Babylon are the golden head. And there's going to be a kingdom and another king that's going to come after you, and you will be defeated. And that's the the silver. And then there's going to be the bronze. There's going to be another kingdom that will come after that. And then there's going to be the iron, another kingdom that will come after that. And then the iron mixed with the clay, that is the feet. But then Daniel shows us, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, here it is, in verse 44 of chapter 2. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever and ever. So Daniel says, Hey Nebuchadnezzar, God gave you this dream to show you that, yeah, you might be the kingdom right now, but there's more kingdoms that will come after you, and they all have an end. But there's one kingdom who doesn't have an end, because the king of this kingdom has no end. And friends, let's take a quick step out of the story. If we are followers of Jesus, I mentioned that our citizenship is in heaven. Heaven is in the presence of God as God's children, this everlasting kingdom that will have no end, that is greater than any earthly kingdom that this world can offer. And that will crush and make, make look silly all the other empires of the world. So then King Nebuchadnezzar, how does he respond to this teenager who just told him his dream and then gave him the interpretation from God himself? Look at verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Guys, this is a powerful moment in the book of Daniel because King Nebuchadnezzar, The mightiest man on planet Earth, from our perspective, he makes this declaration that, wow, the God of Israel is greater than any God that we have here in Babylon. And he even says, the king of, the Lord of kings, which means the master of kings, which he's saying, the master of of me, myself. And me, today, I, I read that part and I'm just like, yes, Nebuchadnezzar's getting it. Look at at what is happening. Look at what God is doing in this pagan foreign nation that didn't have a relationship with God. But I want everyone to turn to your neighbor and say, "Uh uh-oh. Because here's what happens in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar just makes this awesome statement. And it's theologically accurate that God is supreme, that God is sovereign, right? Right? And that he is Lord of kings. What Nebuchadnezzar says is right, but here we see a sin of Nebuchadnezzar that we're gonna talk about furthermore in detail tomorrow, but it was so convicting for me while I was studying for this. Because Nebuchadnezzar says the right thing in an emotional moment, but then we enter chapter three. And this is a famous story where Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90 foot golden image. It's a false guy. Yeah, literally like a nine story building. And he says, hey, Everyone who's here in Babylon, bow down to this inanimate object. Even though Nebuchadnezzar just declared, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. And then the next chapter we see, bow down to this false God. And here's where I was so convicted as I was studying for this. Because I see Nebuchadnezzar make this right declaration. He makes this right profession. And I've had moments in my life where maybe I said the right things. Maybe I even stood up at camp. Maybe I did the right things and I said something theologically accurate, but in my heart, I really didn't believe it. In the book of James, it's in the New Testament, there's this principle that shows us that faith without works is dead. And I told you, if you have your faith in Jesus, then you are made right with God. But what we see here in James is that if our actions don't align with that faith, I'm not saying we're living a perfect life, but if our, a majority of our actions don't align up with the declaration that we're saying, then we really actually never believed. So here we see King Nebuchadnezzar never, never really believed. He just makes this emotional decision. And maybe this is true for some of you guys. Maybe you, you've had a time where you made this profession, but then your life didn't really change. I'm not saying you you were perfect, but only you and the Lord truly know, do I really believe this? And we're gonna talk about that a lot more in detail tomorrow night. So now let's let's think back to what's happening in chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar gathers everyone. They're the mightiest empire. There's many nations that are represented now in his kingdom. And he says, Hey, when you hear all these instruments, I want you to bow down and worship this false God that I've built. And it it really is just a slap in the face to God Almighty who just gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream. And then Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you're the golden head. And then what does he do? He builds a golden statue. Nebuchadnezzar just wants all the glory and praise to him. And he says, when you hear all the instruments play, bow down and worship. And everyone in Babylon bows down and worships this false God. Everyone except for three Teenage boys who stand together. And that's Sherman. That's Sherman in the play. right? Do you remember when Sherman, he, he's taken to the fiery furnace over here. And, and they knew what was at stake. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar had made this declaration that if you don't bow down, then you are going to burn in the fiery furnace. So let's read. Here's our main text tonight. Daniel chapter 3. Verses 12 through 18. So what happens here when they just don't bow down and everyone around them, probably tens of thousands of people is bowing down except for these three boys. There are certain Jews whom you, talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for this word that we can learn from today. Okay, so what happens here? They stand before the king, and he even gives them a second chance. He said, maybe you he didn't hear me right, but then they, they actually don't even take advantage of that second chance, and it's literally like if one of you was standing before President Joe Biden. Uh, well, no, 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 listen. I'm not asking your opinion of him, but it's the fact that he, he is president of the United States of America right now. And imagine if you, as a teenager, are standing in front of one of the most powerful men on the earth, and then he gives you a second chance. Maybe you had a punishment coming, but then you look at him, just like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, look at the most powerful man in the earth, and then they make this declaration that we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so And then they they have this beautiful declaration of who God is. So friends, here's point number one. Everyone hold up a one in the air for me. And if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write it down. We persevere through trials by knowing who God is and who we are in him. So where am I getting that from? If you look at verse 17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego They know who God is, and they know who they are in him. It says, our God, whom we serve. That's where I get that second part of the main point. They knew who they were in God because God had made a covenant promise with the nation of Israel. And they knew that God was their personal God and that they were God's people. So they know that they are God's people. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. We've talked a lot about God being sovereign, that God is the one who has the authority to rule. And they say, that's a cute furnace that you have, but you should see my God who has control over the fiery furnace. And they know that God can save them out of it. So they know who God is and they know who they are in him. Just like we talked about having resolve to make the right choice, even when we don't know what God will do with that, that's a characteristic of God's people all throughout time, even today. It's also a characteristic of God's people to persevere through trials because our confidence is in him. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. And then we see it throughout church history and then today. We see God's people. And in this new covenant era, followers of Jesus persevere through trials because we know who God is and we know who we are in him. Who's ever heard of the song or the hymn, It's Well With My Soul? Over these next couple messages, I'm going to be bringing different verses from this hymn into the messages because actually the gospel has been preached to me through this song. And it was just resonating so much with me that I was lifting my hands in praise like we were talking about earlier. And then I went and I looked at the story behind this song. I was just curious when it was written. And then once I started digging to the depths of it, it wrecks me. And here's why. Because we see... A man named Horatio Spafford. Everyone say Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford. Pretty sweet name here. In the late 1800s, Horatio Spafford goes through trials that I'm going to tell you about that I wouldn't wish on my greatest enemy. Because Horatio Spafford, his wife's name is Anna, and they were blessed with five children. In 1871, their son died of pneumonia. And then there was a fire in Chicago and Horatio's business collapsed. And then two years later, things have recovered a little bit and Horatio and Anna, they have four daughters and they decide that they're gonna go on a vacation to Europe. And as they're going, Horatio sends his wife and his daughters off on a boat because he has some business to attend to. And he says, you guys go ahead and I'll meet you there. And Anna and their four daughters are on the boat. Four days into the journey, Their boat crashes into a ship. After 12 minutes, the ship sinks underwater. And Anna, we have recorded, she prayed, Lord, would you either deliver us from this or give us the endurance to handle whatever might happen? And she lost her four daughters there with the ship. And she makes it to Europe. Nine days later, and all she can do is just send a message to Horatio. And it said, Saved alone, what should I do? And Horatio hops on the next boat that he can. Four days into his journey, the captain stops the ship. And he says, This is most likely where your daughters died. And in that moment, as he's sitting over the grave of his daughters, Horatio, who's a courageous follower of Jesus, goes back to his cabin and writes this song. So here's the first verse that I have up for here, that I have up for you. It says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And what does that mean? Because I know there's some old English happening here. If you go to the next slide, Jackson, we see that when peace like a river attendeth my way, that means in the peaceful seasons of life, when things are good, when things are comfortable, when sorrows like sea billows roll, sea billows is like a mighty wave coming. So Horatio, in the grief, as, as he's standing over his daughter's grave, he says, the, the, it's just billowing over me, the sorrow that I'm experiencing. In the peaceful seasons of life, in the sorrowful sorrowful seasons of life. Whatever the circumstances, God has taught me to say, My soul is well. Who else do you know that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, that doesn't have their hope set in Jesus, that can respond to life's greatest tragedy like this in this moment? He's not saying it's easy, but that last line, My soul is well. Guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had no idea what God was going to do for them standing up to the mightiest man on the planet. Horatio, he couldn't tell you exactly why God and his sovereignty let the daughters drown. We can't completely make sense of all of it. Part of it is that we are in a fallen, broken world. And I read Revelation 21 verse four at the first night that there's gonna be a time when if we have our faith in Jesus, all things will be restored. There's gonna be no more death, no more tragedy. But here in this fallen, broken state where our sin is rampant, there's gonna be pain and there's gonna be tragedy. But Horatio, what we're gonna see throughout this song that he writes, he knows who God is and he knows who he is in God. He says that my soul is well, not because anything Horatio had done, because he knew what Jesus had done for him. And that 99.999% of his existence is going to be in perfect relationship with God. And that gives him hope, even in the most painful times of life. And here's my second point. If we think back to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let me turn back there in, in Daniel 3. What do they say to King Nebuchadnezzar? I love how it's worded here in scripture that in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king. And what it's saying here is that we don't know who was really the spokesperson for these three guys, but they all believed this. So they all basically said it to the king. And here's my second point, that we persevere through trials by standing together in truth. That's what these three teenagers do who have their faith in God. They know who God is. They know who they are in God. And then they stand firm together. Even when tens of thousands are bowing down to this false God around them. Even when they know they're gonna be thrown into the fiery furnace. They stand firm together. And here's what I'm gonna do now. This is gonna be an interactive exercise with everyone here in this room just to get this point across. What I'm gonna do is I'm going to show you something to do with your hands. And it's going to make a noise. And we're not going to say anything, but I'm going to show that together we can make something far greater than if we tried to do it alone. Okay? So I'll show you a sign to do with your hands, and then when I point to you, to your area of the room, I want you to copy that. Does that sound good? Okay. So I'm going to start with this side, and here's what we're going to do. Just right here. Nope. No snapping. Just rubbing. And then let's go back and keep doing it. Okay, now here's here's what I want to ask. What's your name right here? Riley, can you go like this? Can you guys hear, sorry, what was it? Riden. Riden. Can you guys hear in? make that noise? No, but when, when we make that noise together, then we can do something far greater than if we tried to do something alone. And I could make out that noise that you guys are making because together in unison, we can do something far greater than if we tried to do something alone and this is a theme throughout scripture. Once again, Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. And here's what's beautiful. As God saves us here in this fallen, broken world, and he doesn't zap us straight into heaven, God saves us through faith in Jesus, and then he gives us his spirit. And then Jesus intercedes with, for us before the Father. But not just that, he gives us family to surround us. He gives us spiritual brothers and sisters who also have faith in Jesus so that we don't have to stand against the tide of the culture alone, that we can walk down this straight and narrow path hand in hand with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's what I'm hoping comes up in some of your cabins tonight, that tonight you can resolve that you look at your neighbors next to you and you see brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you go back home, you're going to preach the gospel to one another. The gospel is that through Jesus and Jesus alone, we can be made right with God. And we need that reminder constantly. And what if you guys go back to your school and, and maybe you're the only one to declare to have faith in Jesus? Isn't it sweet to do that together with someone and to remind someone? Maybe there's someone who you're close with who's following Jesus and a great tragedy happens in their life. And maybe you can just go and be with them Maybe you can remind them of God's sovereignty and goodness, even when it doesn't make sense. Maybe someone's mom gets a a chronic disease diagnosis, but she's a follower of Jesus, and and you remind your friend hey, one day there's going to be no more sickness, that this is just temporary. We need community. We need to stand together. That's why I love that Hume has this philosophy that we want churches to send up their youth group together because you're going back home and God gives us local churches, which means a gathering of followers of Jesus to stand together and preach the gospel to one another and remind us of this truth. And it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, and we can also in unison answer and declare the glory and praise to Jesus together. So what would it look like for you? And here's what I'm going to do. I don't have a key question for you tonight. I'm just going to have the the main points come back up on the screen. And then we're going to go to cabin time after Melinda closes chapel. And I want you to talk about what does it look like to know who God is and to know who I am in him. I told you night number one that there's only two camps you can be in. You're either a child of God or you're an enemy of God. And what does it look like to know who you are in him? And that's, what, that's the only thing that can give you true perseverance through trials. And then what would it look like for you guys to stand together in truth as brothers and sisters in Christ? Let me pray. Lord, your word is so powerful because it's from you. And thanks for this timeless truth that we can read stories from over 2,000 years ago and still see you through the text and still see how this applies to us as your people. God, I pray for the cabin times that are coming up. I pray that you speak through some of these students. I pray that you speak through some of these counselors, that you bring the right questions to the table and that we can just come so honest with the questions that we have ultimately and trusting that you will meet us there and answer them for us. Lord, thanks for faithful saints like Horatio Spafford. Thanks for your people like I, Mishael, and Azariah that we can learn from. And would we see that you are the only one who gets all the glory and praise. They don't do anything apart from you, Jesus. You are the cornerstone. Let this all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.